Good evening, um, and welcome to uh, this evening's Polis Public Lecture. My name is Sonia Livingstone. I chair the Department of Media and Communications here, and it's a good thing I don't have to talk very much this evening because my voice is about to go, as you may hear. But before it quite goes, um, I'm very pleased to um, introduce our speaker for this evening, uh, who's going to talk on a controversial and um, fascinating news story that had many of us um, paying a lot of attention to uh, the state of journalism, uh, the internet, questions of regulation and globalisation um, over past months. Our speaker, Charlie Beckett, uh, directs Polis uh, at the LSE and in the Department of Media and Communications. Uh, and Polis is LSE's media uh, think tank. Uh, before coming, before we enticed him here, I should say, um, Charlie was a journalist at the BBC and at um, ITN's Channel 4 News for 20 years. Uh, he's a leading expert on how journalism is changing uh, and the impact of uh, political and global uh, transformations. He's, um, as many of you all know, an influential uh, blogger uh, with many followers. And he writes and broadcasts for international media and speaks at conferences um, almost every week, as far as I can uh, see. But uh, when he's not speaking at conferences around the world, he is also uh, teaching uh, in our department and engaging students in the work of uh, Polis. So this is um, an event to uh, uh, celebrate his new book, which I think is not quite out, but very uh, out in January. Uh, WikiLeaks News in the Networked Era is published by Polity Press and is going to uh, examine the effects of WikiLeaks and the future of news in the networked era. So please welcome tonight's speaker. Um, thanks very, very much um, for that introduction, Sonia. Um, I just realised I've got another reason to be uh, nervous tonight, which is that uh, I've been here for nearly six years, but I think this is the first time that Sonia, who is my head of department, has actually heard me lecture. Um, so uh, I may be seeking other employment after this. Um, Sonia uh, has a, a sore throat. Um, I should make my excuses as well, which is that if I start slurring at all, uh, it's nothing to do with the usual reasons. Um, I had a bike accident yesterday. Um, a Mercedes-Benz uh, ran into me while I was uh, cycling down a cycle path and um, I ended up breaking hard and um, catapulting myself across its very shiny bonnet. Um, luckily I was wearing a helmet but um, there's a few scars and my, my mouth is still a little numb. Um, I, guess, <laughs> I guess if I was um, a proper journalist like Nick Davis at The Guardian, uh, I'll probably spend the next six months investigating this incident and, um, and proving that Rupert Murdoch was behind it. Um, and if I was, um, perhaps if I was Julian Assange, I'd probably wait five minutes and then issue a press release accusing the CIA of an assassination attempt. Um, but uh, I'm very grateful that you've come tonight because I realise it's um, been quite a, uh, a busy day out there in the real world uh, and transport and so on is, is not entirely easy. And indeed, uh, the last 12 months or so has been an extraordinary uh, period for the news media, uh, from the events, uh, the upheavals across the Arab world, uh, even to the, the Western economic uh, breakdown. Uh, this has been an extraordinary uh, period of dramatic events, 
uh, very compelling narratives and some quite awesome, in the real sense, issues. It's been a year of deep, rapid change and conflict. Uh, and when you think of the media stories uh, of the year, such as the phone hacking scandal, which continues to uh, reverberate thanks to the Leveson inquiry, or if you think of things like uh, Whale Nomin and his use of Facebook uh, in, his, in that campaign for democracy in Egypt, uh, I think it's obvious that uh, the media is now part of the stories as well as just uh, communicating them. And as this kind of often stormy year draws to a close, and as Sonia mentioned, I'm looking forward to the publication of my little book in, in January, I think it's a good time uh, to use WikiLeaks, if you like, uh, to explore uh, as a kind of case study, perhaps, uh, the dynamic relationship between uh, the media and change, political change particularly. Um, what I'm arguing is that WikiLeaks is the single most challenging journalism phenomenon to emerge in the digital age. Uh, the stories that it's broken have rightly been compared to those historic scoops of the past, like Watergate or from the 1970s, the Pentagon Papers release, which uh, revealed that President Johnson, uh, that his administration had lied about their conduct of the Vietnam War. And the model that WikiLeaks has created is a radical development in journalism storytelling, which could be compared with uh, things like the creation of a new genre, like uh, blogging. And of course, WikiLeaks has provoked anger and enthusiasm in equal measures from across the political and the journalistic spectrum. WikiLeaks has com compromised the foreign policy operations of the most powerful state in the world. It's caused the most mighty of news organizations to collaborate with what is a relatively tiny editorial outfit. Yet, of course, WikiLeaks could be uh, about to disappear. And what I'm going to look at tonight is not a detailed history of WikiLeaks, but an attempt, at least, to assess its significance. What I want to try and ask is, what's new about WikiLeaks? How far does it challenge power in governments and in mainstream media? Is WikiLeaks really a, a media revolution, or is it just a vanity project, a brief technological adventure that will fizzle out in failure and recriminations? But first of all, um, I want to find out what you think. So I'm going to ask you very quickly if you could put your hands up, if you would describe yourselves as supporters of WikiLeaks. If you think of yourself as a supporter of WikiLeaks, put your hands up now, please. Good, we're filming this, we've got your names. Um, <laughs> is anybody here who would actually describe themselves as, I suppose, the opposite, an opponent of WikiLeaks, someone who wishes that Julian Assange had you know, never lost, left Australia. Anybody see themselves as an opponent of WikiLeaks? Okay. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> I, um, you know, I, would, I would describe myself as a supporter of uh, West Ham United, uh, another uh, lost cause perhaps, but I would describe myself as a supporter of West Ham, but I would not describe myself as a supporter of a particular media organisation. As Sonia mentioned, I worked at the BBC, 
uh, and great affection and respect for it. Uh, I have enormous um, uh, respect and admiration for my old colleagues at Channel 4 News, but I would never or I would hesitate very much before I called myself a supporter of them. And I think that shows um, how our relationship uh, as citizens to the media has changed these days. Although in this lecture and in the book, I have tried at least to keep a relatively uh, balanced approach. It seems to me that everyone has their own WikiLeaks. It depends on what you do, your politics, or where you are in the world. Um, but everyone has their version of what WikiLeaks is. To some people, it's a terror group. To others, it's a noble cause. Um, is it a website, or uh, is it a person called Julian Assange? Is it a data dump, or is it a radical publisher? Now, this variety of perspectives isn't surprising, because WikiLeaks has changed. It has a history, uh, and it does different things at different times and places. It's also obviously a highly controversial and indeed a very secretive organization. And that makes it harder to come up with empirical facts, let alone any kind of consensus. But I'm going to try at least tonight. Um, this is uh, my version of WikiLeaks to be published in January. The book itself is a collaboration uh, with James Ball, who's a journalist who worked at WikiLeaks, and he now works at The Guardian. Uh, and the first thing to say about WikiLeaks is that it's not a wiki, and it never really has been one. Jimmy Wales, who uh, you know, founded Wikipedia, is cross when people confuse the two. Of course, wiki implies something like Wikipedia, a kind of shared production created with a process that has rules, but is essentially uh, an open, crowdsourcing, collaborative activity. WikiLeaks, on the other hand, is a closed system. And partly, of course, that's for security reasons. That's how it works. You can send the material, uh, but you have no control over what happens to it, let alone how the organization is run. It has no board, it doesn't produce reports, and the website isn't very interactive. It's a bit like the Polis website, actually. Um, slightly more interesting. Because of its uh, transnational status, uh, WikiLeaks doesn't have a home. Uh, there are no offices, and its servers are mirrored around the world. Now, this makes it virtually immune from the usual sanctions against media organizations. Things like taxation, regulation, the law, or political and commercial pressures. But it also means that it's unaccountable uh, in the same normal ways. But WikiLeaks is journalism. Uh, in some ways, it's very traditional journalism. There's absolutely nothing new, of course, about leaks. Uh, if you think about uh, journalism history, uh, giving journalists secret information has been part of the trade since uh, whatever sort of foundation myth you want to choose, such as 17th century pamphleteers. And neither is there anything new about the fact that WikiLeaks is very political. You only have to think of people like Michael Moore and John Pilger or Simon Heffer and Peter Hitchens. All of these are what I would call good journalists, but they're all very partial and with a very strong worldview, just like Julian Assange. And even so-called liberal mainstream journalists like myself who worked for UK broadcast organisations, they were legally obliged to be balanced, 
But of course, people like me also have personal biases and we work in an overall ideological framework that's going to influence uh, the kind of journalism that we produce. Um, and of course, um, there's nothing untraditional uh, about having what you might call an eccentric editor. Most of the best journalists I've ever worked for have either been you know, kind of odd at best and at worst they've been monsters. Um, but Julian Assange has deliberately put himself at the heart of WikiLeaks, uh, so it's not surprising that people think that he's synonymous with it and they've focused on his charismatic personality. But whatever happened uh, or happens in Sweden, uh, let's try tonight at least to go beyond the ego. So, you can argue about what kind of journalism WikiLeaks is or whether it's good or bad journalism. But it certainly can be described as a source, an editor, and a publisher of news information. So journalism, it definitely is. But let's go on about the significance rather than the categories. What I want to look at is the fact that I think WikiLeaks is important for what it says about the state of the wider media. Firstly, it's a vital case study for the future of journalism. Secondly, it's central to the debate about the open internet. And thirdly, it's a battleground for the very nature of political communications. Yet, as I say, it's bound up with the personality of one individual, um, and it could well be at the end of what is a pretty short life. So why does it matter? Well, let's look at how it's structured and uh, what it did. And apologies for those of you who are very familiar with this story. But... The idea of WikiLeaks originated uh, at least a decade ago uh, from Julian Assange's hacktivist activities in Australia. Indeed, at that time, he was uh, prosecuted for breaking into the computer system of, uh, of one private company. And at that time, for Assange, it seemed that the internet offered a wonderful opportunity to combine his fascination with programming and breaking codes and his emerging personal ideology. His writing from that time describes how angry he was at the injustice that he saw in the world, which he describes as a network conspiracy. He observed that the control of information was absolutely vital for those in authority to keep power. So only by breaking into the networks of information could you challenge that power. But Assange says quite clearly he's not interested in transparency per se. He's interested in using disclosure to fight for justice. Now, WikiLeaks wasn't even the first leak website, but it soon became the best known after it went live in 2006. And that was partly uh, thanks to the extraordinary energy of Julian Assange and his relentless drive for attention. It was never really a wiki, but instead became the publisher of various small-scale leaks uh, on the principle that they would publish anything that you sent them that they judged to be a genuine leak, regardless of its value. Now, some of these early leaks, such as uh, the leaks about corruption in Kenya had a direct impact on politics there. Others, such as the publication of the rituals of uh, US college fraternity clubs, were of rather more trivial interest. And it was in this period, as WikiLeaks was struggling to get noticed, that it received a cache of, of, of material that was to change everything. It included a piece of video I'm about to play, play you. you may, I'm sure you've uh, already seen it, but I'm just going to play you... Um, this works. 
I'm just going to play you a short section. played you any um, uh, part of that um, sequence it's it's all um, well a lot more uh, shocking than uh, indeed what you saw there um, in that sequence um, in, in the earlier part of uh, that operation um, there were actually two of the people were killed that they mentioned were uh, employees of the Reuters news agency and in the van that you've just seen, um, that was rescuing the bodies from the earlier shooting, were two children. Uh, amazingly, the, the two children survived, albeit with very, very serious uh, injuries. Uh, and this video of the Apache helicopter gunship operation from 2007 in Baghdad did something that mainstream media had been largely unable or unwilling to do. It shows us directly the reality of American military operations. It literally made visible the consequences of American foreign policy. It was deeply shocking and disturbing because it showed in the raw the actual violence of modern warfare, in this case actually filmed by the participants. And it showed the desensitization uh, of those taking part in that warfare. And indeed, it uh, suggests, to put it mildly, that the rules of warfare had been broken. But I also want to show you uh, the version that most people um, actually saw. As you can see, 12 million people saw 
seen there is obviously an edited version that WikiLeaks have put together through their own production. Indeed, they sent WikiLeaks journalists to Iraq to research, to find the families that had been affected and so on. And then they put out that version, which as you saw was watched by 12 million people at least, just on that uh, website. Um, and it's a, very, it's a different version. Uh, what you saw, for example, there was WikiLeaks pointing out very carefully, quite correctly, uh, the Reuters cameraman, but not pointing out the guys with the AK-45s, uh, the other insurgents, or call them what you will, who were with that group. Now, my point here is not that WikiLeaks was somehow lying with that. Um, my point is that, in a sense, they were now creating something that I instantly recognize as a kind of traditional journalism. This is a highly edited film with interviews inserted to add a particular framing of the issues. The quotes from Orwell at the front were a kind of propaganda, while the graphics during the action were editorialising as well as being informative. This version of the video has in effect been edited selectively to make the case, even more strongly, that war crimes had been perpetrated. So I suppose at this point in its history, WikiLeaks um, as manipulated material um, and to that extent it can be seen to be acting like traditional journalists. It shows that WikiLeaks was able to reveal secret information and to challenge power and using the internet by putting that online it put this story uh, onto a global platform. Now it caused a strong reaction from the US administration and the military but interestingly it had very little impact on the wider media agenda, let alone on uh, US foreign policy. In that sense, it didn't impact on uh, public opinion or public debate. So you could argue that it failed, certainly in terms of what Julian Assange wanted to achieve. Now that all changed thanks to the other material in the same leak that it was allegedly from Private Bradley Manning. It appears that one person in the US Army gave WikiLeaks that video, along with 91,000 military records from Afghanistan, 391,000 records from the war in Iraq, and more than 250,000 confidential diplomatic dispatches, which we know as the embassy cables. Now, each of those caches of information in its own right would be the largest leak of classified material in history. And just a handful of them uh, would have been a normal front page scoop. Collectively, they formed an almost unimaginably large security breach. Uh, and we can argue about the precise importance of what they revealed, bearing in mind that these were not top secret documents. Um, they were classified. They were, if you like, medium levels uh, secrecy. Um, 
But absolutely, this was the kind of material that news editors like me dreamt about getting hold of. And of course, that's precisely uh, what was about to happen. WikiLeaks realized that only with the collaboration of mainstream media could they process this volume of information, and perhaps more important to them, bring it before the public in a way that would have real impact. Now, this is the period of collaboration with media companies like The Guardian, The New York Times, and Der Spiegel. And it's this phase that I call the network journalism phase of WikiLeaks. And by network journalism, I mean journalism created by journalists or news media organizations by opening up their working to collaboration with other organizations or to the public. And it's what I write about in my first book, uh, Supermedia. This has now become the way that most, uh, most news organizations work, at least in part. And in, and in this case, in the WikiLeaks case, you have the leaker, you have WikiLeaks, and then you have the mainstream media organizations combining and then engaging with the public through the interactivity of their websites. Now, after the event, after this period of collaboration, uh, when, generally speaking, it had broken down, Julian Assange said that it was always meant to be just a tactical alliance. But teaming up with the mainstream media brands gave WikiLeaks the platform, the audience, the context, and the journalistic resources to package this slew of data in a way that people can at least begin to understand. The data was not dumped. It was gradually processed and published incrementally, although that publication process was fraught with technical, editorial, and personal problems, as both uh, Julian Assange and the mainstream journalists struggled to cope with the vast amount of information and the need to edit it to avoid endangering individuals. Now, there was clearly also a struggle uh, between Julian Assange and the mainstream journalists for control over that, pro uh, over that process. And that eventually led to the bitter recriminations and, of course, the final uncontrolled release of the data in September of this year. The journalists at the New York Times, or The Guardian, and The Spiegel, and Julian Assange clearly had different ethical values. WikiLeaks was much more prepared to take risks partly because it had much less to lose than a news organization that's subject to commercial and legal pressures. Yet it's interesting that all the partners who fell out with WikiLeaks have told me that they would work with WikiLeaks again if a fresh leak emerged. And my guess is that Julian Assange would too, if he could. Um, WikiLeaks at this time was what I would call a network exploit. It took advantage of the special nature of the internet networks to provide it with immunity, with scale, reach, and of course cheapness as well. But it was also exploiting the network of mainstream media. It sought to use the mainstream media's newsroom skills and the power of their brands or their reputations to connect the public to the stories revealed by this vast amount of information. And this is typical of what Andrew Chadwick calls hybrid media, a mixture of diverse individuals and organizations. They're often working uh, on the margins as well as the mainstream. Uh, they're working in a variety of formats and through diverse flows of information that can be uh, organized or arbitrary. And you can see this kind of hybridity playing out in the case of uh, WikiLeaks as the data it releases passes through networks to appear in everything from a complex uh, interactive graphic on the New York Times website 
all the way through to a tweet, perhaps, by a WikiLeaks supporter. But what's clear is that uh, in 2010, going into 2011, WikiLeaks really is now effective. And not just in the West, but around the world through partnerships with news organizations like the Hindu in India and Dawn in Pakistan. In fact, it was so effective uh, that it came under sustained attack. It was accused of being on the side of evil and the war of terror. It was assaulted by journalists as well as by politicians who accused it of undermining sacred ethical codes. But perhaps the most worrying aspect of the WikiLeaks saga from a freedom of information or freedom of expression point of view is the way that the corporations who effectively run the internet were prepared to compromise on the principle of its openness. And by that I mean the um, refusal of, of service from companies like Visa and Amazon. And as I travel uh, the world, people tell me how the assault on WikiLeaks is being used by their own governments to justify putting controls on the media. In the same way, the very idea that the UK government even considered controlling social media during the recent English riots, that is regularly cited to me as an example of how the liberal democratic West is just as bad as dictators like Egypt's uh, Mubarak when it comes to the internet and dissent. So there's clearly a global struggle underway for the freedom of political communications and the battle lines are not always clear. Media freedom of expression, like any other, is not an absolute. Journalism has to prove that it deserves the claim to freedom of expression by showing it's prepared to be responsible. Now, is WikiLeaks responsible? Now, it's, it's not entirely clear what exactly happened, but the unredacted, unredacted sorry, disclosures of this autumn, when all the uh, documents were made public, uh, and so putting some very good people at risk, that showed that WikiLeaks was not able to act responsibly. WikiLeaks has also shown that it's not open. And I would argue that it's, in a sense, not even political. By that I mean that it doesn't appear to have a sense of what its policies are or even a plan of action and an understanding of the cause and effect of what it does. It doesn't seem to have a real sense of its moral accountability. So perhaps the reality of WikiLeaks, rather than the hopes that people had for it, is that it is both unsustainable and ultimately irresponsible. But whatever happens to WikiLeaks, and I don't wish it to fail, if only in the interest of book sales, um, whatever happens to WikiLeaks, the circumstances that made it possible are not going to go away. So here's another thought. Is the real revolution actually happening somewhere else? Perhaps Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, not Julian Assange, is the real media political revolutionary. Many would say that the genuine participatory political media is happening in social networks, not on closed projects like WikiLeaks. Some of these examples are more obviously revolutionary. During the uh, continuing Arab uprisings and agitations, we saw and continue to see an unprecedented wave of networked exploits that combined social media like Facebook or YouTube with mainstream media like organizations like Al Jazeera, combined with a physical collective protest on the streets. 
We've seen how weak ties online have helped create powerful political communications for change. And perhaps, perhaps, we're seeing similar phenomenon around uh, the Occupy movement. Others are making real change in social contexts. If you think about how people, for example, are creating their own hyperlocal news in networks, uh, some can even be life-saving, uh, such as a social network for people with rare diseases. Others will be superficially trivial. I return to the football obsession. You think uh, a football fan forum um, may appear super superficially trivial, but it may have deep reserves of humanity when you dig down into the conversations uh, that people are having notionally around sport. Now, these are not going to overthrow capitalism tomorrow, but forums like these, like Mumsnet on a national scale, they're providing people with their own ways to mediate their own lives. <clears throat> this can build social capital and help uh, redefine identity and community, as well as mobilise ideas or actions. And at the same time, the old-fashioned fortresses, such as political parties and traditional media, well, they're also straining to accommodate these changes. Even these bastions of closed information power are being at least redesigned. For example, more government data is being made more open and more transparency is entering into everyday professional journalism, hastened, we hope, by the Leveson Inquiry. In the end, I think it will be the way that these organisations are being transformed that offer the best hope for substantial, if incremental, change. But where there's a threat to power, we should always expect a reaction. So we absolutely need things like WikiLeaks to remind them to change. The demand and the tools for change are there, even if WikiLeaks ends. The technology that allows this new media will continue to evolve, offering the ability to speak out in new ways. And certainly, the anger against injustice is there, fueled by inequality, uh, fear and violence. The public scepticism about mainstream politics and media is not only still there, but appears to be growing. Phenomenon like WikiLeaks challenge mainstream politics and mainstream media to re-engage. And that task is more urgent than ever. Dramatic pause. <clears throat> Put simply, the old order uh, cannot be reasserted. The problem for mainstream media, for example, um, was not simply a business model problem, it was that the internet revealed, and WikiLeaks is part of that, it revealed how it had failed. What I want to argue is that we're now in an age of uncertainty. Uh, WikiLeaks is part of this uncertainty for the media. The old media is fragile, and in some places it's in retreat. Uh, the low barriers to entry and the endless connectivity have brought us a kind of new citizen media armed with iPhone cameras, flash mob campaign videos on YouTube, or the storms of outrage that pass through Twitter. Even the Great Firewall in China is now regularly breached. And this media uncertainty reflects, of course, the uncertainty in real life. Not just the revolutions or the economic roller coaster, but the deeper trends related to climate change, immigration, and even things like scientific advances. And of course, it should be said that uncertainty can be good. It allows for a change uh, that can be progressive. 
But we must also recognise that the age of uncertainty is also the age of complexity. And in terms of the media world, just think of all the devices and platforms and, source, uh, and sources that you have, including WikiLeaks, of course. And these are all additional. They're not replacements uh, for the channels of, com of communication we had before. They supplement them, they add to them, they make them more complex. So we end up with a multi-layered, multi-dimensional, multi-faceted media. And again, this media complexity, that reflects how our own lives have become much more complex. Uh, huge factors such as the historic growth in personal and national wealth, uh, the, the growth of individualism. Combine these with social trends in education and health, Combine these with technological or market innovations. All that means that our lives have become much more complex. And of course, this too can also be good. Complexity can mean diversity, variety, choice, creativity and growth, as well as confusion. But what uncertainty and complexity mean, above all for me, is that we need something to help us make sense of this world to give us a voice, to debate, to debate what changes, and then to hold power to account. I would call that thing journalism. But vital, vital to that new networked media ecology is the kind of disruptive, critical, innovative, outsider journalism, especially when it can also be networked into those wider media flows. Well, Nomin in Egypt started on Facebook, but his breakthrough moment was when he appeared on Trans-Arab TV uh, after his release from prison. So I think it's about the outsider, like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, plus even people like the privately educated Oxbridge liberal of the magnificent Adam Rusbridger and The Guardian. So to conclude, I think that WikiLeaks poses a series of challenges to the status quo in politics, in journalism, and indeed of theories of political communications. It's been one of the new forces that have exposed the democratic deficit, including in the most developed countries, of course, in the West. It's helped highlight the failings of mainstream media in reporting war, politics, and the economy, and it questions our fundamental expectations of how we mediate power and give voice to the citizen. I think that the partisan approach to judging WikiLeaks has plagued the debate and prevented mainstream journalists and politicians from learning from the experience. Speaking as a journalist, I'd argue that instead of taking sides, we should be taking notice. Julian Assange isn't the first journalist to have strange habits and a huge ego. He may or may not deserve uh, moral or even legal censure. But in the end, the WikiLeaks episode and its significance is not about Julian Assange, but it's about democracy and the citizen and the role of journalism in our networked age. The biggest threat to democracy, of course, is not WikiLeaks, it's not the new network news, it's still secrecy and the abuse of power. So I say welcome to the age of uncertainty, embrace the age of complexity. What WikiLeaks represents is the nature of news in the networked era, a time when we need good journalism more than ever. Thanks very much.
Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Um, we have um, plenty of time for questions, and um, so do you want to take them one by one? Or? Yes. Okay, let's um, start off taking them one by one, um, and I would ask people please to um, just say who they are and their affiliation. You're very keen. Yes, please start. Hi, um, my name is Mary Eng. I'd like to ask if you have heard about the recent hack 24 hours ago regarding the stalking of the Operation Wall Street thing. It's a firm called Geduldig that works with the US Congress. It's similar to the HB Gary affair with WikiLeaks. I've heard of it, but that was when I was falling off my bike, so I didn't, I didn't pay I'm attention so sorry. to it. So no is the answer. Um, Hamish McLeod, you talked about um, holding power to account. And with your traditional journalist hat on, that's very much about holding our masters and either elected or unelected governments to, to account. But one of the impacts of the new technology is a shift in the balance of power. And actually, private individuals now have a huge amount of power going slightly wider than pure journalism, think of the pupil who puts up a um, career-ending allegation on Rachel Teacher, something like that. So I, I think the whole issue of holding power to account needs to be thought of very, very broadly. It's not, it's not just the, 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 the traditionally powerful, but it's private individuals as well. And a court system really is completely inadequate. I would suggest for that. And I would like to hear what your thoughts about how holding people to account can be achieved in this new era. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're moving into a world where there are, in a sense, two public spheres. If I dare use that theoretical term in Sonia's <laughs> presence. But um, I think there are, and they're not separate, of course. They're, we are part of both all the time. I think on the one hand, as I alluded to there, there's a kind of um, deinstitutionalized set of social networks, and some of those will include um, lots of quite unpleasant things. It will include the power of, as you say, a pupil to go on those lovely websites where they slate their teachers and so on. Um, and then I think there's another public sphere, which is still, if you like, the institutional public sphere. Um, and you've hit your nail on the head in terms of the legal problems of trying to have similar codes or ethics, let alone legislation, that can somehow uh, act the same in both spheres. Um, I would say, I would argue in, in a quite a libertarian way about the, um, the first public sphere, the non-institutional one, because partly because I think that any attempt to control that, even in a, a way that kind of moderates abuse, will always end up compromising the essential uh, freedom that it offers. However, I don't think that means that if you are in the other, if you like, institutionalized public sphere, you should somehow join in with the anarchy. I'd actually argue the opposite, that I think um, one of the um, strengths still for a journalistic institution is that it can say, 
we are accountable, we are responsible, we adhere to codes, and therefore you can trust us to be uh, more, whatever, reliable, honest, truthful, and we're prepared, if we make mistakes, to be censored. Now, that sounds beautiful. What I'm not suggesting is somehow that journalistic institutions do that very well at the moment. That's why we've got the Leveson Inquiry. Uh, it's been quite clear that we've been appalling at that. But I, I would argue that rather than abandon the attempt to inculcate responsibility, you should start seeing that as a value that sets you apart. And I think that's, in the end, uh, whatever the failings of organisations like The Guardian or The New York Times, and they may have many, you only have to think about the reporting of the build-up to the Iraq war, um, they can still make that claim that they are accountable and responsible. Uh, so in that sense, there is still a value in, in some sign of legality around it. Um, yes, gentleman at the back. Hello, my name is Keith Hindle and I used to be a foreign correspondent for the BBC. Haven't you gone rather over the top in giving so much credit to WikiLeaks? Because it seems to me Bradley Manning is the real hero of your story, or whoever was the source of all this colossal amount of information. And WikiLeaks needn't have existed. He could have sent his disks or whatever it was straight to the New York Times or indeed the Guardian. And the effect perhaps wouldn't have been quite so powerful without the, the, net, the electronic networks, but really the WikiLeaks part of it wasn't really necessary. Just tear up your book now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, before somebody else does. Um, well, yes, but as a journalist, we sort of deal with the facts as they are. The facts is that is how it happened. And I think you're sort of doing a counterfactual there. What I think you're right... Allegedly. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I did say quite clearly that the, the point of that kind of network journalism is you have to have somebody who is, in this case, a source. And in that sense, WikiLeaks was a platform... Uh, and then it combined with these other organisations which were spreading around. That again, though, is not so. Um, that is not so different from traditional journalists. That um, I think it's put a number on it, but about 90% of what most journalists do is acting actually as you know, literally a mediator between reality or information, passing on other people's opinions and, and views and so on to the public. So I don't think. I think what you're in effect saying is that WikiLeaks is even more, in a sense, like a normal uh, journalistic platform. Um, I think you're, you're, you're somewhat underestimating, to be fair. Normally people don't say that I've been too fair to WikiLeaks, so that's nice. But um, I think you're underestimating the technical difficulty of actually providing that platform. A lot of the organisations which have tried to emulate WikiLeaks to provide a kind of Dropbox uh, data dump, whatever you want to call it, that is genuinely secure and actually works, uh, have struggled. So in that sense, credit to uh, Mr. Assange for uh, uh, creating at least something that worked for a period. So I think, you know, we will never know. The key thing behind it is, I think a really interesting question is, where would the next person, allegedly like Bradley Manning, go to? I think that's a really interesting question. Because, of course, WikiLeaks has not been able or willing at the moment to accept any more leaks. 
uh, let alone publish anymore. So I think there's a really interesting question about who would you go to. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal has now created its own kind of version of a WikiLeaks Dropbox. Um, unfortunately, if you look at the small print, it says things like, we cannot guarantee that we won't tell the police. Um, so you may not entirely trust that to, to, to reveal anything dangerous to capitalism. But I think that, that's, in a sense, the real question is, is where do you go to next? Um, yes, front. Uh, my name is Peter Bowles. Uh, the Leveson Inquiry is mostly to do with hacking and how they've got their information. What I'm interested in is, is the information correct? And what is the situation with WikiLeaks? We know Wikipedia, I know just in my own experience, it isn't always right. And it's very important that the information is correct. In the old days, we had the BBC and what was the old thunder at the Times, and we sort of could trust them. But since in recent times, apart from the Murdoch organization, we're having uh, the Washington Post and so on, where well-known journalists have been shown to be making up stories, actually making them up. And isn't, <coughs> there's a psychological thing here for people to feel that uh, WikiLeaks, oh well, it must be true, it's a leak, it must be true. It seems to me that it's a very dangerous area for misinformation. In the wrong, there are very clever people out there who would be able to use this for gullible people uh, for misinformation. We've only got to see this tremendous industry uh, in people um, trying to persuade people to pay a lot of money to go to lectures like yourself where you will be telling them how they will become millionaires. There was a program last night on it. People are very gullible and are liable to think that things from WikiLeak... Uh, I'd like... In other words, what I'm saying is how can we find... Who pays them? Who goes to see whether the stories stand up? Where does the money come from yeah. to pay people like yourself to go and check a story? Yeah, I think well, one, of the, one, one of the strange things about, um, not strange things, sorry, one of the interesting things about WikiLeaks and the, the whole leaking, the, you know, the big leaks, nobody has ever queer, questioned for a second that any of that information was not valid. Um, nobody has, has queried that it's true, you know, it's factual. And of course, you know, as we know, it's all about the context. What I tried to show there was that WikiLeaks itself had kind of, once it moved from being a pure leaking site that it would publish anything, inevitably moved into a situation where it was, well I use the phrase manipulating, but you could say editing or packaging information, and then it moved into this phase where that, it realized that wasn't actually working, because the interesting thing is that I don't know how many people have actually been on the WikiLeaks website and combed through all the, the documents. I doubt very many people have. It's, it's an impossible thing to do. It's a lifetime's work. So inevitably you're relying on somebody else to uh, mediate that information to you. And as soon as they do that, they're inevitably selecting, they're inevit ine inevitably um, going to prioritise things they think are interesting or important or significant and that is a form of, of distortion obviously I mean, I spent 20 years doing, doing precisely that um, but I think the difference 
is, and this is why I enjoy and celebrate um, this kind of disruption un and uncertainty, is that I think it does two things. Firstly, the more stuff that gets put out there in its raw form, generally speaking, the more you are able, or other people, other experts are able to uh, access it directly and judge for themselves. But secondly, that it may, it, it's a way of holding uh, the, the professional mediators, the journalists or the politicians, to account. If you've got the data out there, then at least theoretically you are able to, 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 to check and compare and find other sources. So what I was trying to argue was not that it's a choice between having WikiLeaks or not, or having the Daily Mail or not. I just hope that there's increasing diversity, if you like, it's this complexity idea, that there's increasing choice out there. Whether people then exercise that, I think, is a very much another matter, but that's for the citizen, not the journalist. There's a question at the back and a question at the front. So, hi, James Paul from The Guardian. Um, in a world with WikiLeaks, um, with network journalism, and even with people like Guido Fawkes, is it possible to view Leveson as anything other than an inquiry into how to regulate a media that hasn't existed for maybe about five years? Yeah. Um, of course, we're allowed to ask you questions. Yes, yeah, that's about as incestuous as it gets. Yeah. Um, no, uh, yeah, I think that the Leveson inquiry is hugely entertaining. Um, I think that there's lots of interesting stuff being discussed. Alistair Campbell was there today telling us how journalists should behave. Um, but it does feel like somebody trying to sort of recreate a period drama, that the end product of this will be that we create a kind of facsimile of what lovely traditional journalism should have been at some point in the past. And I slightly disagree with you, Peter, in how, how um, reliable um, journalism was in the past. So I, my concern is that um, Leveson will end up kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic of mainstream media rather than uh, really invigorating it with a sense of transparency and a sense of accountability. I think that uh, will come much more through the competition of um, groups like WikiLeaks through generally uh, you all being able to uh, use um, medium like Twitter, etc., and Wikipedia um, to um, hold information, if you like, to account yourselves. So, um, much as I delight in watching Leveson, and I, I don't mind to sound too cynical about it, um, I think it's genuinely um, a good thing. And yet, how easily it would have been for Leveson never to have happened if it hadn't been for the appalling Millie Dowler case. I wonder whether we'd have this wonderful parade of Hugh Grant, etc., in front of us. A question at the front. Hi, I'm Asim Khan, a media student at SOAS. Uh, sorry. sorry. Oh, my question is kind of related to what's been discussed before. Uh, the kind of uh, for, it's in two parts. One is WikiLeaks did tie up with established traditional media outlets like The Guardian. Uh, could you just describe a bit more what is the nature of that exchange that happened? Uh, was there a sort of contract on which, on which the dates were decided <coughs> when the material would appear and uh, what eventually went wrong? The, the bigger point that I want to find out uh, and sort of hear from you more on 
is what kind of, I mean, you obviously said it's failing, but uh, in terms of like a business model, what if tomorrow a, s a similar organization offers these services, because eventually these are, I mean, as someone said, a glorified Dropbox, isn't it? Someone's getting the information for you. What if there, there was someone who's, or an organization that, that gets this information for you, but for a price? And they really deliver, like you are an NGO, let's say an environmental NGO, and you want to find out what is the amount of oil spillage by BP in the, in the seas. You, you have to pay for that kind of information even in business circles. What if journalists are willing to pay for it and get this, interest, uh, this, this news, which would be of public interest, but will cost money? What do you think, as, as someone who teaches journalism, that's the future we are looking at? Thank you. Your, your second question sounds like a business proposition. Um, <laughs> But unfortunately, somebody is, well, not entirely, but somebody's already got there. Um, yeah, I'll answer the second one first. There are now a whole load of organizations um, that are seeking to emulate the Dropbox method, if you like. One of them is from a former WikiLeaker called Daniel Domscheit-Berg, who is creating something called OpenLeaks, which he hopes to work with NGOs um, to release information um, in a way that's more focused and with a purpose and so on. He's, I, don't, I don't know if he's asking for money. I guess there'll be some money that changes hands. Um, what I think is quite interesting is that where are the other leaks? Where have they all gone? Is it that the treatment of the alleged leak of Bradley Manning, which has been so utterly appalling and frightening, has that put off the other leakers? Is it that the governments of the world have suddenly clamped down on information? Um, well, actually, it's not true. The State Department um, has, of course, adjusted its information uh, practices, but in fact, they, they rely so much. Corporations and governments rely, and the military rely so much on the flow of information that there's still a lot of stuff out there to be leaked. And yet, and yet, and I've dug around for the last year trying to find someone who has successfully emulated WikiLeaks, and nobody has. So I think it's a genuine, we call it a research question, I think, um, about what happens next in terms of who exploits those technologies. I don't think it's as easy uh, as it might appear. The other question about the relationship between those uh, mainstream organizations and WikiLeaks, well, to put it very shortly, I'd suggest that, and I'm not suggesting that it's not an impart, uh, a partial book, but you know, go and read The Guardian's own account of it, um, which, again, if nothing else, is hilarious for some of the uh, thriller-style prose, uh, which I'm afraid I can't promise you in my book. Um, but that's a, that's a good version. And indeed, last night, there was a very good Moore Ford documentary, which was a pretty even-handed two-hour um, narrative of that relationship. And I think it is fascinating, and I could have gone on about it more tonight, that's what I mean when I say that WikiLeaks was a challenge um, to mainstream journalism. It certainly was. If you talk to the people um, who were involved in that, it really did challenge their norms and challenge their assumptions about uh, how journalism worked. In their excitement to get their hands on this incredible material, um, those journalists uh, had to do things that they wouldn't normally have been comfortable with. And of course, on the other side, uh, Julian Assange you know, famously was less careful uh, and cared less uh, about the possible effects. Um, but um, perhaps you ought to go and talk to James about that. Or David no, Lee. There are, there are two questions. 
Um, just two questions. Uh, the first one is, you went straight into Plan B, the WikiLeaks idea of forming a collaboration with or working with journalists, but you didn't mention the failure of their Plan A, which was to put data out there and wait for individuals to analyze it and nobody analyzed it, enough people analyzed it. Um, and I wondered if you could say something about that, given the context of what you said later about the, the role of the individual. And the second question is, could you also say something about the counterattack that was launched against, or has been launched against, against WikiLeaks, having failed on, on the, um, uh, to attack them on the re release of information, compromising of people, etc. It seems to me that the American establishment have, have coordinated a massive uh, business attack through... <coughs> Um, yeah, on the on the, the sort of Plan A thing, um, in a way it didn't fail. The original, let's just publish stuff. I mean, the, again, if you read Daniel Domscheit Berg's book, he um, shows that that was obviously that was also sorry problematic. Um, it was not without difficulties, but generally speaking, it worked. But they weren't the only people to do that. There's another um, very interesting website called Crypto, which um, has released. Um, rather more boring but very important crunchy secret squirrel type stuff but it's very very specialist and only about 10 people in the world really care about it but it's working very happily uh, and has continued uh, I think it's quite simply that Julian Assange was not interested in as I said transparency for its own sake he was interested in a particular he wanted to have a, a massive global um, impact on massive global issues uh, so he really didn't just want to do what the leakers wanted. Uh, he wanted to impact uh, upon the power and injustice that he saw. And when that massive leak came along, quite rightly, he saw that as an extraordinary opportunity. But he'd seen, as I explained, that previously, even the collateral murder video, stomach-churning as it is, didn't really break through. Um, and so it was that idea of a network exploit, trying to exploit both mainstream media as well as the internet, that he saw, I think quite rightly, as a way of unlocking that influence. That's what he wanted. He wanted influence. He didn't want freedom of information per se. The second point is quite interesting, the counterattack. Um, I said that the battle lines in this struggle for the open internet, and I do really think this is by far the most important media issue going forward, uh, Leveson is a tea party compared to this, is, is what's really uh, important. But the battle lines are not clear. So, for example, um, I'm not entirely convinced by the conspiracy theory around what PayPal and Visa and Amazon did. I don't think it was simply a phone call from the, the White House or the State Department that said, shut them down. I think, even more distressingly perhaps, they did it themselves. You know, they somehow felt it was in their interest to do that. But also there is the debate around the open internet is also happening in places like the State Department. There has been a struggle over the last couple of years 
between a conflicting ideologies around information freedom in the State Department. There's a faction, if you like, that um, sees free information as a way of actually promoting American interests. They're spending billions of dollars on trying to help hackers and bloggers uh, in what they would see as closed societies in an attempt to spread the free market um, and free democracy ideals. There is also a faction within the State Department who has a much more traditional sense of let's control information so we can control power. So when WikiLeaks happened, the, um, if you like, the conservative or reactionary or uh, control faction went ballistic and they got the upper hand in the State Department. Uh, and then along comes the Arab Spring and suddenly the State Department thinks, well, hang on, this is quite handy after all. So they are, there, is a, there is a kind of battle that's happening within the corridors of power as well as outside of it. Thank you, Charlie, for a very interesting and thought-provoking lecture. Um, one of the interesting things, I think, that came out uh, from this lecture, uh, for me at least, is um, the idea that perhaps uh, what truth is in terms of the news is now changing, uh, or at least it's shifting hands from the big institutions, from the mainstream journalist agencies to people, be that uh, the superego of Julian Assange who uh, constructed himself as somebody who was counter the big institutions and centers of power, uh, but also the everyday people, just the man on the street, uh, who uh, used Facebook or Twitter in order to uh, bring um, thousands of others in Tahrir Square, for example. So um, I just wanted your, your uh, reflections on, um, on that um, uh, shift. Obviously, uh, mainstream media haven't lost the power to define the news, but what happens today when we see that the primary definers of news in key uh, political and cultural moments of um, uh, you know, uh, contemporary history are actually um, in the hands of ordinary people? How does that change journalism? Does it make it more powerful, more ambivalent, more risky? Yeah, all the above, I think. Um, when, I, when I worked at Channel 4 News, and I was a program editor there, so I was kind of, in a sense, um, in control in some ways, allegedly anyway, or I thought I was, in control of setting the agenda. And every morning I would have a morning conference and I would say to people, look, here's this story about the economy interests are down, so that must mean the balance of payments is going to change, or there's been this um, you know, sh shift in the, the, the shadow cabinet, and this means that, and there's been a train crash, and um, I think that it's probably been caused by this, and uh, therefore we ought to do that. And there was a, a very um, experienced journalist, I won't name him, but he was a fantastic reporter, and every time I used to say one of these things, he'd say, how do you know that? And I said, well, I, you know, it's in The Guardian, or I've read it on the one, he said, how do you know that to be true? Um, and I said, well, you know, and in the end, what he meant was, unless I sent him out there to find out for himself, he wouldn't actually um, believe it to be true. So I have to say that, that, that completely undermined any sense I ever had of the truth, uh, let alone that mainstream media was somehow um, the, the sole repository of the truth. But I think it's true. I don't quite share the idea that somehow the power over that agenda or 
uh, verification has somehow shifted to the, the citizen or the public. I don't think that's the case. I think there's still an incredible amount of corporate government uh, and other control over what we know. I don't mean a kind of deliberate sinister one, but it's still when you think about what you know, what you know today, just think about how you know that, how much of it really comes from your own experience or shared experience. Of course, that is increasing through things like social media. So what I think you're into is an era, era rather, at least where mainstream media understands, and I think increasingly the citizen understands, that this information is contestable, um, that especially with an accelerating uh, news cycle, and that's not something we've spoken tonight, but news is becoming faster. And so increasingly what we think of as the truth or the orthodoxy is increasingly provisional. It can literally change in a few hours uh, and, and over time. And in partly in reaction, bouncing around, uh, in reaction to um, these other platforms. So that goes back to my idea of uncertainty, that um, what is any kind of truth is uncertain. All you can hope for is that that contestation, if you like, over what's true uh, is more transparent. Ivor Gabus at university. I was going to sit here very quietly and not say a thing, but uh, I just wanted to, you, you made me think, so, okay, Charlie, you're back at Channel 4 News and some WikiLeaks stuff, whether it's video or stuff, drops. Now, you know, if we get a video, sorry, if we get a video news release from Greenpeace, we'll put, you know, video release from Greenpeace. It's a really great story you've got from WikiLeaks, but of course, the you know, you're not going to have time to, uh, to check it to the extent that your Scottish man would like you to. Do you run it um, with those sort of health warnings, this has come from WikiLeaks, we cannot ascertain it? Do you sit on it or do you go for it? Well, I think you know the answer already, really, um, which is that you go for it. I think there's a... No, no, sorry, with, yeah, obviously. I think, I mean, there's a sort of joke, isn't there, um, Sorry, I should preface this with, it depends, you just said channel, it depends on whether, which brand you are. I mean, if you are The Economist, well, you wait till the next week's magazine. You've got that luxury, although increasingly they're online as well. If you're Channel 4 News, you have a one-hour program, although, again, they have a website increasingly. If you're Sky News, you run it straight away with a, with a strap. And, of course, that leads to the joke, doesn't it, that, you know, famously... Sky always say, you know, never wrong for long. Um, and it's used as a joke, but actually I always thought, I'm not, too, I'm not so worried in the sense that... Now, obviously, if, the, if, you, if, you, if Sky News or Channel 4 News consistently, or anybody else, consistently lies to you, you'll stop paying attention to them. Because one hopes that, you know... It, it, will, it will be revealed to be a lie. But I think that there is a value in, in this is all about this idea of network journalism, which is not just about publishing something and then saying, please send us your emails. It's about trying to at least open up the process right back to the when you're thinking about what you're doing or as you're thinking about what you're doing. So, And it's only a symbolic thing, really, but, for example, the Guardian... 
uh, now putting online its news lists every morning. So that news list that the grumpy Scottish guy would harass me about, that was now going to be online for The Guardian, and you can at least see what The Guardian's thinking of covering that day. Um, so I, I think that people are much more attuned in a... Because uh, think about it, if you don't put that material up, people are going to go onto YouTube, they're going to get it through Twitter, and they're going to be asking, why didn't you tell me that? The question at the front. I think we're going to enter into the last round of questions soon. Question at the front. Um, there was one at the back and one in the middle here. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, you're, you're the one at the back, as it were. Um, I was just wondering, there's a bill on the floor of the House of Representatives in the U.S. right now that's marketed as a bill that would protect the rights of copyrighted material on the Internet, but there are a lot of clauses within the bill itself that would really essentially prevent websites like WikiLeaks um, being distributed by major cable and Internet providers in the States, and I was wondering if um, you think that sort of bill would have a future... Could be and um, if it would even, and if what, what effect that would have on future organizations like WikiLeaks? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and it's, it goes beyond the bounds of my real technical knowledge, but it's sort of what I was talking about, the, the, the open internet battle lines not being as clear as we think. You know, as a journalist, I never used to really care that much about copyright. There was a department that looked after that. Um, but if you start to think about how that can be used to control you know, proprietorial rights, I would <coughs> refer you to somebody who's much cleverer than me, a guy called Timothy Wu, W-U, who's written a great book called Master Switch, which is about how in, throughout media history, corporations have ended up um, taking over media innovations that have, I don't know, democratic or open potential and not in a sinister conspiratorial way necessarily, although that happens as well, but they end up clamping down on them and that, as I said, reduces the other benefits of it. Um, people claim that the internet is somehow naturally different, that you can't control the internet and you can't restrict it, but I think you can do a lot to restrict flows on the internet to make it in practice much less free and open than it is. And personally, um, perhaps it's because I'm a journalist, but personally my bias is always in favour of the risk of openness uh, rather than the security of, uh, of closed systems like copyright. Frederick Samuel, I've been working with United Nations and other, many other organisations uh, and journalists all over the world. Uh, many, many times you talk about technology as the source to find uh, leaks. Uh, my you is the complete opposite. Uh, behind almost every single leak, there, there's a, a person, a source. Uh, with today's speed, uh, with the internet, how, is there any possibility to still keep the source protection as, as a journalist? For example, in the case of WikiLeaks? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think you're right to remind us that, um, generally speaking, every leak has a leaker. And, you know, again, throughout journalist history, they've, they've had a, they generally have a reason to leak. Um, and that, in a sense, conditions or should condition in the journalist's mind or the publisher's mind, you know, why is it being leaked? And it was interesting that WikiLeaks didn't have that consideration before. Um, 
they had created a system that failed in the case of this particular league, um, but not particularly because of their systems. There were other reasons why it was disclosed. It was disclosed, again, if you want to read the whole Lamo thing, in a sense, the leaker allegedly uh, incriminated himself in a completely separate development. To be entirely fair to WikiLeaks, that wasn't their, their problem. Um, we are coming to the end of our time, and uh, hands are still going up, so I'm going to take um, a last three, and it's, no, sorry, it's going to be uh, the one in the middle there, uh, lady here, and um, lady in blue there, and I'm sorry for the others, but can we take the three and then ask Charlie to respond, and then, yeah, so Payal. Hi, uh, hi, I'm Payal. Uh, my question was regarding uh, WikiLeaks had nothing shattering to expose. I mean, it was not a Watergate scandal. Uh, it didn't have a Watergate scandal kind of an impact. And especially in India, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks tied up with Hindu, which is a very pro-communist paper, and the kind of leaks released were extremely anti-Indo-US policy, uh, had a very anti-US Indo-policy framework. So in that case, my... Um, respect for WikiLeaks died over there and uh, if I wanted to ask you if WikiLeaks turned into a mainstream <coughs> media would it still be as robust as aggressive uh, as it is now if, if, if WikiLeaks were a mainstream media organization sometime in future to pass it just to uh, the lady yeah thanks okay uh, my name is Katerina um, my question is you said WikiLeaks is journalist Assange a journalist. <laughs> okay. Um, is Assange a journalist to those who didn't hear? Um, and final question. Yeah. Okay. My name's Eleanor Garner. I'm a political reporter at the BBC. You asked us, hi Charlie, um, you asked us to uh, think about WikiLeaks putting aside the ego of Julian Assange. <laughs> but um, do we, don't we need the ego, an ego like that, to have this kind of impact? So how significant was his ego? How important was it in the huge impact that it had? And perhaps, I mean, you say you spent the last year you know, researching this. Maybe there are massive, massive leaks out there, but there are no egos behind them. <laughs> and therefore, they're lying undiscovered at the moment. Well, maybe they were dropped in the box of the New York Times, which has not released them yet. Yes. Um, yeah, um, the, the, the Watergate comparison, is, uh, I mentioned it, so it's my fault. In a way, it's a bit invidious in the sense that Watergate is almost the opposite of WikiLeaks, in that um, it, was a lot, it was a classic kind of Nick Davis-type investigation over a lot of time, um, a lot of door-knocking, um, it relied on not just there was the deep throat, but there was a lot of political machinations around it. Um, so in that sense, it's it's almost the opposite of of, of the WikiLeaks principle. What I think is interesting about your other point, which is that it's in a sense biased. You know, um, I mean, I think it is. I agree with you. I think it's hilarious. I was I was at the conference with the editor of the Hindu the other day, who's the most enthusiastic man I've ever met about WikiLeaks, and it's, it, as you say, it's, it's sort of ironic that a communist sympathising paper is, is so enthusiastic. What I would ask about the bias is, um, not the bias, but 
if you think about WikiLeaks, because of that major, major leak, the revelations have all been about a country that, in my book, is still more democratic than most. It's more open than most um, by certain measures, i.e. America. Uh, and that it's easy, uh, easier to get information out of that uh, country and its systems because they are more open. Um, we have not seen, originally WikiLeaks in its original kind of manifesto and its original claim was that it was working with Chinese dissidents and that it would expose totalitarian regimes. We have not had any leaks uh, from China, um, from WikiLeaks. Um, yes, Julian Assange is a journalist, um, whatever that means these days when we're all kind of journalists. And I agree that, um, with Eleanor that it was absolutely, if you don't, if you don't believe passionately and you may be wrong to believe this, but if you don't believe passionately that journalism can have an impact and that there's a reason for you to do journalism, uh, then it won't, you won't create, I don't believe, very good or very interesting uh, or very influential journalism. So in that sense, you do have to be motivated by, and it may be a distorted political ideology, it may be uh, the, the, the sheer desire to be in front of a camera uh, or, or the sheer excitement uh, of, of trying to reveal information and convey it because you think, as I say, however spuriously you think it will have uh, some kind of impact. If you don't have that anger, that curiosity, then frankly, whether you call yourself a journalist or not, I, I, I don't think in my experience that you'll create very good journalism. So, as I said in there, I don't, certainly wouldn't criticise him per se for having an ego, but I think that perhaps uh, that the tragedy is too strong a word, but uh, in a sense the fatal flaw of WikiLeaks as a project, and I'm not writing the obituary, I really am not, but the fatal flaw of it has been uh, that by all accounts it has almost utterly depended on one person who of course, like all of us, uh, is fallible. And I'm not talking about the personal stuff. I'm talking about uh, his way of working, um, his singular vision, which meant that this project with so much potential, and perhaps still has potential, uh, in the end uh, was destroyed by its reliance upon him. I'm sorry that we're out of time. Um, I think there's been some really fantastic, thought-provoking questions. So I would like to thank you uh, as the audience for um, thinking so deeply about this lecture, but especially uh, I'd like to ask you all to join me in thanking Charlie for a fantastic talk. <laughs>